And maybe this is a really good message for all entrepreneurs, certainly has been for us. It's that one of the things I chased early on was advisors who came out of Fortune 500 companies. Like, I got to get the big people. I got to get some man or woman who's just been in the highest echelons of business because I'm the little guy and they're going to know what to do. And that is just not anywhere close to true. Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Welcome leaders of B2B to another episode. You know I'm Ledge and I am a managing partner of Ad One Zero, where we do outsource sales and rev ops for B2B services companies. Always a pleasure to be here. We have another exciting guest for you today. I have with us Robert Feeney. He is a co-founder and in charge of new business development for Knowledge as a Service, Inc., otherwise known as CAS. Robert, I'm not going to give your intro for you. For everybody in the audience that doesn't know you or what you do, you know, give it, give us a shout out. Tell us the story. So I, uh, I got into the knowledge management business uh, pretty accidentally. I, I came into it from, I started out with the entertainment industry. So I was, very originally, I was uh, an actor. And then I came, and then I went into the other side of the camera in Los Angeles, and that led us through a really interesting circuitous route to software. And when I ended up developing a software company, it was around trying to help out advertisers to figure out how to get people to their campaigns more often using entertainment and marketing, you know, which was the kind of storytelling I was brought up in. And we were so successful at that, we kind of accidentally came across this interesting software-driven way of doing that, that when we tried it out with a company that needed had learning problems, like they had to get their people to come back to their training more often, the same way as you'd get customers to go to a, an ad campaign, we actually found it worked. And so and now I have the dubious distinction of being a software executive uh, who's an expert in learning. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So we talk about like corporate knowledge uh, you, and I believe you guys work with very large companies. So you're talking about sort of tens of thousands of people need to be brought into some kind of learning and development regime, really big budgets spent on training, keeping people up to date on all kinds of stuff from security to, you know, how do we sell the customers? I can't even imagine giant ML LMSs and yeah, nobody ever goes back. They go to these expensive trainings. They don't tell anybody about it. Five days later, they forgot everything you paid $20,000 for. So, okay, so you managed to hack learner brains with software? It's funny you said it that way. We, I, I tend to style it as cracking the code of the brain. Exactly like that, yeah. Because uh, w 
what all of us get is the reason that we forget right after we do a learning event, you know, like a classroom or an e-learning is one, we're not entirely sure whether it was relevant to us, but more what's going on in the brain is the brain's a sorting system. The brain sorts out anything that you don't repeat over and over again. Like that's not a defect though. That's not a bug. It's a feature. You know, you're, that's how you, we stay focused. But if you're training and you're learning, you're trying to get across to thousands of people, whether it's compliance or performance, you're expecting they come out of the class and they've actually learned it. And that expectation does not match reality. Sure. Yeah. I mean, why? And, and you came, like you said, from the advertising space. I mean, there's the everybody in marketing and sales. We all know that you know, to take like average of nine touches of, with the same message to even like make a dent, like, and, and then you just remember the commercial because it was funny, but you can't remember which insurance company it was for, you know, so if my kids even know like what Aflac is, except they don't know what Aflac is, right? So, you <laughs> right. know, because yeah. it's on YouTube, right? So, yeah, yep. huge problem for, you know, trying to, to do upskilling and, you know, just make your workforce more relevant, not to mention that, gosh, I mean, you know, the, the pace of change, of, forget about like technology or any of these things in the marketplace, Oh, and then, hey, let's throw in a pandemic for, for good. <laughs> Just for kicks. Yeah. Good kicks, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, walk through, like, literally, what is this and how does it work? Well, you, you named it right there, uh, like when you were using Aflac as an example, right? Because you, there's an entertaining way that, that Aflac and their advertising agency has figured out how to get people's attention and make it memorable, make it stick, right? So and you, when you think about it, advertising, you know, Madison Avenue and Hollywood have had this figured out for a century. Give people doses of something interesting to, to connect to at just 30 second doses in a commercial. And then it's gone. And then you go back to whatever it is you were doing or watching, and then it'll come up again. Same thing with billboards, right? You know, you drive by a billboard and you just see it for a moment. Then you're going to see that same billboard, you know, 20 minutes later down the road. You see enough of those touch points, eventually, that call it the brand as you do in Madison Avenue, that brand of learning stays with you. And then you're, you're going to eventually turn that into uh, retained knowledge. Now, if you take it one step further, you get people to take action on it and then they start building habits. Sure. Right. So muscle memory and such. And, that's right. Uh, you know, neuroplasticity and all that. Yep. And that's the key. So different than maybe a short message that might be in an advertising type of message where, you know, like you might be talking about more complex topics for, for a training type of thing. So bridge the gap there, you know, cause like I get the concept, but if people are learning about, I don't know, you know, like how to deploy AWS or something like that, you know, with 157 different services and, you know, like it's a lot more complicated, right? You get, it's not enough to just be like, Oh, I know what a virtual machine is, you know? So how do you extend this concept into really complex topics? Well, what we figured out early on is that, that you've got to have, you got to get set up for success in the very beginning with what we call a goal design. Uh, and it's something that we innovated as a way of getting at the last mile that doesn't get covered in normal training. You come out of your training, you forget, you know, and that doesn't then translate into performance. So how do you cover the last mile to get into performance? Well, you got to kind of get that set up in the very beginning. We do it with a, a methodology that we developed called the ask methodology. Now, from an innovators and founders standpoint, you'll kind of get this. You, we, we first went out there with that pattern of engaging people in those 30 second spots, like I mentioned, micro learning, and we saw something was missing. 
and it was just what you identified. It was like, how? okay, great, we can keep people engaged for a while, but how do we get into layers of complex information? So the ask methodology was something we installed as a way of, in the beginning, creating a competency model that focuses on attitudes, skills, and knowledge. Now, knowledge is kind of easy to figure out. You're giving a bunch of things people to cognitively remember, right? Or skills even is kind of easy to think about. Okay, are we got to figure out how to do this? But then attitudes, how do, you, how do you develop an attitude? But we found, and we actually took this into clinical trials, like randomized controlled trials, where we proved we could impact human behavior this way. Attitudes was the gateway. If you can change an attitude, you can change what people do and how they do it. So is this like the nature of sort of saying like a, a positive desire to learn type of attitude or what what uh, would be the, I don't know, like almost the taxonomy there of attitudes, like what's a good one and not a good one? I mean, I kind of imagine, you know, I have little kids, so, but yeah. So, yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, little kids, is a, they're great because they model at a most basic level what we never really grow out of, which is, yeah, one, there's got to be something interesting and welcoming about the thing you want to experience, right? And learning or training is not usually high on our list of something that we want to experience. We think there's a lot of more fun things to do. So if you can, the first thing you want to do is deliver it in a way that someone will welcome it into their day. So we deal with that in a few ways. One we, we, we have this patented method for getting it on the in-between moments that you, you get pinged on this mobile app and it asks you to engage for just 30 to 60 seconds, right? And in a way that's fun and entertaining. Two, you bring incentives in there. You know, there's an opportunity to, to win extrinsic prizes or you're, you're leading people towards some sort of certification that's good for their career. And then three, the fact that you're taking so little of their time you know, for you and me too, it's like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for not pulling me out of the things that I care about to go take a, another class or another workshop. And it's not that and you can have brilliant classes and workshops, but just frankly, we're jealous of our time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I get it. Well, that's cool. So you're, at least if you gamify that way, it's better than the dopamine hit from, you know, a bunch of likes on Facebook for, you know, yesterday's picture. So. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's better, but it is a little different. But well, and to some extent, <laughs> it just depends what you love. But it, you're, but you know, you touched on it there. That neurologically, what happens? We we figured out when when you when you put time into the equation, it makes a difference that you don't think about really when you think of training usually. And again, from like a perspective of, of a founder, let's say, you know, when I'm forming a company, uh, I, I'm constantly up against deadlines or, or, or like lacking resource or trying to drive something to, uh, you know, success before some terrible thing happens. You're constantly up against time. And that doesn't sound fun. But for a founder, there's something really charged up about it. Like you want, you, you thrive on that, that challenge. Well, there's a little of that in all of us maybe exaggerated in a founder, right? But an entrepreneur, but there's a little of an all of us, it's called eustress, EU stress. And eustress is like positive stress. If you give somebody something to do or focus on under a ticking clock and there's an incentive to it and they know that the subject that they're looking at is useful to them, you know, like it's a tip or trick or something empowering, You've given them a reason to want to like let their adrenaline go up a little bit and deal with it right then, and then you move on. 
So it is kind of like the dopamine hit you're talking about. Well, it's like urgency. Yeah. That, you know, urgency and reward. And if I don't take the reward, then I might lose it, which is good for, you know, sort of you don't want to have a reward taken away from you. So And that, that makes a difference, too. In our system, we have it where you can lose points. Right. Or gain points. If you, right? <laughs> you don't. Do that. Yeah. Nice. That's good. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I totally get the psychological trigger. Yeah. Not unlike what we would do in a sales environment. So, I mean, it certainly certainly plays to uh, training people up and the investment that companies are making. Uh, I mean, it sounds sounds good to me. I hope that uh, you know, everybody's picking this up because <laughs> they need it. So. It it really does it really does fill a gap. It's a significant gap, and the good thing is is that it's being found. I mean, every, anyone who's listening to this should will be able to relate to it. Just the training experience you talked about that we all have. When we think about when you get into really large enterprises, and they don't have that thing that correlates performance with training. Like they're two different worlds that don't really touch each other. They I, both both sides want to touch each other. They're just not conditioned to do that. So building the bridge in between those, where you're driving performance through enough repetition, that habits get formed, and then you can measure that those deliver on per KPIs for the organization. It's pretty killer. So there's 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 a lot of need for it. Yeah, and up yeah. upskilling is huge. I mean, like imagine that people retain things, and we didn't have to lay people off because we needed the next level of skills. Like you could actually pick that stuff up. So. Yeah, there's a Fortune 50 company that's working with us right now on on trying to figure out how to upskill and reskill at scale. Because there's you know, everyone's trying to tackle this issue right now. But if you can do it at scale, where you can have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that can be moved to skill adjacencies without interrupting whatever they're currently working on or being built out on, that's it's kind of the holy grail. Cool. So, all right, founder journey, you know, tell us, tell us the story there. You know, we have a lot of founders listening and I relate, you know, so I, I want to know, I want to know the journey. I want to know the brick walls you ran into at a hundred miles an hour. Warts and all. Yeah, you know, right, I, I, exactly. Speed bumps. <laughs> I, I, like, tell me some disaster stories because this is, this is the good stuff to me. So. Well, the, the, I would say that, you know, I've been through, I'm trying to go through the list in my mind of how many walls I've hit and, you know, how many broken bones, right? Well, the, the, when starting out, for me, the interesting thing is, is how many times I have thought I knew exactly what I was aiming at and then found that, I don't know, call it fate or just life itself took me in a different direction. Like I told you, I stumbled on the learning industry largely. I, I was in the entertainment industry and the idea was to try to find ways of keeping fan bases engaged more often with TV shows and movies and such. And then I wind up working instead in a utility underneath a CIO who says, I need to figure out how to make sure that my IT organization doesn't, we don't get non-compliance fines in our next audit. Can you help us with that? Um, we're like, I, I don't know, can you pay us? You know, <laughs> that, that right there, folks, that's a founder story that we all have. <laughs> like, I know. Did you, did you offer to pay me for a thing? Then sure, I can do that. <laughs> it's amazing what we can do, you know, when you just say you're going to pay us. But, you know, like all founders, we, there's, we're so willing to give things away in the early years because you, you just want to make sure people, you know, maybe somebody will love your baby. We had prototyped our technology early on and, you know, had the least enough good fortune in the beginning that we'd had some big advertisers who were trying it out, right? Then when when I had that question given to me by that CIO, it, it was like, okay, I, I don't know how to make this pivot. 
I, I, and it kind of, it was that there were grinding gears in my head, like, no, I got to stay focused on, I'm almost obsessively focused on the vision that I have for this product in the entertainment and marketing industry. But we were running into some serious problems with uh, revenue. We couldn't get our customers to pay enough for us to run this early stage software, which can be very expensive. You know, the earlier you are, the more expensive it is to run it. You finally build optimization over time. That was tough. So I had to face the, you know, the, the do or die scenario there early on, probably faced it at least a dozen times since then, <laughs> but of like, geez, am I going to totally pivot and how, what the heck am I going to do in a, in this case, it was a utility company. What am I going to do with a giant utility company in the state of Washington trying to train people in complex critical infrastructure protection and cybersecurity. I'm just trying to get people to buy a can of Coca-Cola over here. You know, I mean, well, let's face it. The, the best thing is nobody knows the answer to that. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's like, like, it's like any of the answers right? will, will <laughs> answer this question. There is no right answer, by the way, just answer this question. <laughs> just, just by taking a leap. And saying we're going to try this, you're probably ahead of anybody else. Well, and I, I think you've kind of hit at the heart and soul right there of the entrepreneur's journey. We can't help it. We, we just want to take a leap and, and then hopefully muster up resource around us because we created some momentum when we did it. That, that pivot thing, though, is interesting because to have that story, I think that we could all learn how to embrace that. And I've been through that, so I, I get it, that... You really built the proper engine, but you didn't put it in the right car, you know, and when you can see your system and the value of the thing you have from different perspectives, it turns out that you might have a really great solution, but you don't have the product market fit that you want. And that's the time to pivot. Like, I mean, look, let's face it. Like, I, I think if you can't generate revenue easily like if it's not almost falling to you when people are aware of it like that's you're not doing it right yeah you know like you can't force people to buy your thing yeah that's uh, so true and and i've at least my experience is when i get to that point and as i said i've been at that point multiple times is uh i get into a bit of a quandary of like should i stop and think about another thing to pivot to or should i look around and see what's yelling at me to pivot to it. And I've usually found it's the latter. I mean, it's not that, not that you couldn't stop and think it through. I've just, my own experience is that you, there is usually something that's saying, give this a try. I'll, I'll give you an example of it. In my experience, there was, so we go to that utility, right? And we start training people in an IT organization, employees of a large organization. And then because we saw some really interesting results out of that, like results that said we could replace the classroom, not just augment it, not just enhance it. We could replace it on this really critical type of information. The U.S. Department of Energy got hold of us. At that moment, there happened to have been a flood of grant money that went into utilities to try out something new with their customers, not their employees so much as with their customers. And like, how do we get people to save energy? How do we get people to conserve and reduce the carbon footprint? Again, I had no, I knew nothing about this and had no particular interest. I didn't wake up in the morning going, gee, how do I save more energy today? It just wasn't in my vocabulary, right? I don't think it's in anybody's. That was the point. Well, right? I mean, you got some greenies that they live by this, but it's not, it's not a huge segment of the population. And so I, 
but there was a, you know, I, the sponsor who had the CIO of that organization talks to a, a guy who wrote that grant, who then introduced us to the DOE. And then they say, hey, let's let's try this out with customers. What do you say? Uh, again, will you pay us? And and so at that point, though, we've got had investors that were in our company and they were getting a little whiplash. I mean, these investors are going, wait a second, you know, are you going to chase after every shiny thing that comes your way? And my answer to that was, no, maybe, I don't know. What should, what's the answer to that? You know, there's, there's always an argument that goes on between, do you stay focused on the thing you said you were going to do, or do you move to what the market is demanding? And I don't think there is a yes or no to that. It's, it's you got to make a, a leadership decision in that moment, and you're going to sink or swim in it. Right. Yeah, and, and maybe you have to do several things that are essentially tangential because because you, you are are you abandoning the one for the other or are you inventing a new service line or are you uh repositioning you know in in some senses for a different persona can you have multiple personas and yeah so you didn't do all, all that by yourself so i think this is the point where like you know a, a really sharp team probably was either coming into focus or came into focus or you knew you needed different perspectives. So, you know, uh, how, how did that go? Because, you know, you go from a tiny little group or even a solo to, you know, sort of an enterprise or a group of people and, and that journey of human connection and relationships to solve problems is, is really one of the key things to, to crack for any founder. It, it is the way that it lives for me is first of all, I, I, have been paired up with a, a business partner since the beginning, a gentleman named B.W. Barkley. He goes by B.W. Brent Wayne Barkley. And uh, we share, like a lot of times when you pair up founders, you know, you, we, we share certain traits. And I would say maybe the most obvious trait we share is th this relentlessness with which we go at visions of what we want to accomplish in the future. The thing, but then everything else is different. Like, like we couldn't be more unlike each other. And, and that helps because it balances, it causes a lot of arguments, but when, if you can be with those arguments and get through them, he's, he's like a shoot first, ask questions later kind of guy, you know, he's a bam, bam, it's all transactional. He's got to make things happen. And me, I'm more like, you know, Hey, let's think about this. Let's, uh, let's, um, let's deal with, let's talk to some other advisors. Let's deal with some people here. And I'm much more people oriented. Right. And then, you know, bugs the heck out of him when he's trying to get transactions done. And he's bugging the heck out of me when I'm trying to say, Hey, let's, let's think wisely about this. But if I'm honest, we would never have gotten to where we got if it weren't for his relentlessness of, you know, we got to just make this happen. We got to move. We got to move. Just make a choice and go. That's right. It's, it, there's a balance you got to strike. And I, you know, we've, we've had the wonderful fortune of a lot of good advisors and we've burned through a lot of relationships with advisors too. I mean, really. You must have had some serious mentor whiplash in this thing yeah. <laughs> because I mean, everybody's yeah. got to have an opinion about what you're doing. And, and the fact that you're sort of carving out a category 
And I mean, how many times were you told like, this will never work, this is wrong? <laughs> like every time. I mean, every time there was something new, there was always like, sorry, that won't happen. And I mean, we would sometimes have an advisor who would even just say, look, you will either do this, what I'm telling you to do, or you will be dead in two months. And then, of course, we're not dead in two months. And what do you do? Write a postcard to the guy and just say, you were wrong. Ha ha. No, that's just it's different. It's different mentalities. And that person who was kind of putting the ultimatum to us, and, and I say person, but we heard this so many times, as you said, that personality, we'll call it, just they were they were hammered out in a different environment. And maybe this is a really good message for all entrepreneurs, it certainly has been for us. It's that one of the things I chased early on was advisors who came out of Fortune 500 companies. Like, I got to get the big people. I got to get some man or woman who's just been in the highest echelons of business because I'm the little guy and they're going to know what to do. And that is just not anywhere close to true. It's just, <laughs> it's not. I mean, I'm not saying that if you worked in a Fortune 500, you might not be a brilliant advisor. You might be. But there's no there's not necessarily any correlation between a startup and a Fortune 500 company. They just don't operate anything alike. Yeah, and I I appreciate those. You know, there are those organizations that you can you know sign up with free advice for the the guy who you know retired and he was a VP of a bank for his whole life and and you know respect because I think you should you should go and find the things that are relevant to you, but have that discernment as a founder that like all advice isn't right for you. Collect as much as you can. And uh, not unlike the beginning of the conversation, like our, your brain is designed for sorting and you probably can figure out which advice doesn't feel right to you. And, and I mean, I've also had the opposite experience where I, I look back 10 years ago and I go, I remember the conversation where I didn't listen to that mentor he was right, and I'm now a million dollars poorer because uh, so yeah, right. <laughs> there's there's both sides of the coin here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure, and and like I, it's like we said earlier, I don't I don't know that there's a right answer to it. It's just that, uh, and it, when something doesn't go well, you can certainly say, oh, that was the wrong answer. But sometimes we misinterpret that too. You you get an advisor who may give you a perfectly even that guy I mentioned ultimatum. You're going to be dead in two months. If you don't do this, okay, maybe that was a little bit dramatic, you know, cut and dried, but what he was saying, I'm sure was absolutely wise in a context. Well, it's, it's all pattern recognition, right? Like we've all seen something happen. So yeah, that particular advisor saw somebody die doing what you were doing. Then the question is what other variables were different you know, in the equation. And you won't always know it as, a, you know, when you're trying, when you're in survival mode and you're trying to build up or, you know, in our case, let's say at that moment, it was trying to figure out how to take a product that was really well received. I mean, I was really proud to say that we just had no pricing model. We had no way of, not no way, we just didn't know how to get it into organizations that could pay our price tag. So it was like, do this. Okay, it sounds reasonable. One of the big stress things for us is like, okay, I've now heard three different opinions about this. Which one do I go with? There's no right answer. You might go with one. You might go with none of them. Yeah, that happens a lot. And and, and there brings us to another subject. I mean, sometimes there's this balance you got to strike. At least I have, and I know my co-founder has, about when do I when do I think my answer is the best answer, and when am I just being way too cocky? 
<laughs> you know, because that that shows up too. I mean, something had me be gutsy enough to jump off a cliff and try to build my own business, right? So there's something you don't want to you don't want to push that aside and say, oh, that's you're a yahoo. No, you know that's how things get innovated. But yeah, there are times when you got to stop and just say, okay, let me listen to what other people have to say about this, because otherwise you won't grow. Yeah, I just get those filters on and try to figure out which thing applies to me and which doesn't. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe, and maybe you can relate to this, that find a way, a low impact way to test the advice. So, you know, try to have that lean sort of methodology where we can kind of go like, I don't know which of those two or three things is correct, but can I test each of them in a way that is not going to kill me if I'm wrong? And I, I think the art of designing those hypotheses and tests at a, a, a low spend, you know, is, is really going to be helpful for a lot of founders. So, you know, I'll take that right into the learning world where, where I live. It's actually a missing in the world of learning. As you might know, if you think about it, you've got to build a whole course and then you put that out in an e-learning or a classroom. And then you got to cycle all these people through this training, right? And then once you're done and the boxes have been ticked, what did you get? Measuring effectiveness of training is a huge problem. Like, does this does this link to anything that we can even remotely measure to say whether that thing we did six months ago was effective? And it's a huge problem. Right, exactly. And and there's and it's the opposite of agile, right? Or lean, as you're putting it. You've got no ability to iterate in that kind of a model and to test something inexpensively. So when we built our system and we really started getting down into the molecules of what, what helps an individual employee in a larger organization, it doesn't have to be large, but that's where it you know hurts the most, is how do you get that one individual to find relevance in their learning and then make use of it day by day by day? Well, if you weren't thinking of an LMS, and you were just inventing it out of your head, you'd say, well, I'd give them a little bit of learning every day and I'd test and see how it was going. And I'd find, look for one little actionable thing to do. And and, and you'd look for the weaknesses. What's not working? Okay, let's remediate that in real time. So we built our whole system to do just that, to make it iterative. And you, you then have trainers and managers learning at the same rate as the learners themselves, figuring out what actually works and you can't help it. You all but guarantee that they drive performance at that point. What things did you originally think and take for granted for too long that you now look back and go, you know, hey, that was pretty dumb, you know? <laughs> um, think Thinking that I should be the CEO. <laughs> Big story. Yeah. No, that happens a lot. Yeah. yeah I, was the, I've, I was the CEO for almost all of my career. And then it was only recently when we formed Knowledge as a Service that I asked that CIO from the utility company that first used it. I said, you, you he, he was also an investor in our company. It's like, he'd really seen this in go, us go through our paces. And he's just, he's a leader that I really respect. His name is Rudy Wolf. And, uh, and he's got, he has that sense of gravitas. And I would take his advice sometimes early on, but I was a little suspect because I'm like, oh, well, he's a big company guy. You know, he's not gonna be able to understand what I do. But have it, he's, he's such an ideator. And when he watched what we did, all those years, he, he really got a sense of where the missings were. And he did see it from a point of care. And like he, he really wanted to lean in and help. 
So I, I got to test those conversations with them enough times and work with them that I said, I would really like for you to put some leadership to this that I just don't know that I'm either qualified or ready to do, or maybe I just don't like it. <laughs> maybe I'm just not good at it. I don't know. I mean, I got kicked in the shins by my co-founder enough times that I think that I, I, I think if there's, there's some argument to be made that I was no good at it. But ultimately, it really worked bringing him in. And then he brought in a longtime advisor of us to be a CFO. And it, it did something brilliant, Ledge. It freed me up to do what I actually do. I think maybe my disease, maybe like a lot of entrepreneurs, is thinking that I can be good at everything. Because when you start, you have to be. <laughs> you have to do everything. <laughs> so it can, it can fool you into thinking that as long as you're just good enough at, a, at all those different things, then you're the one who has to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and that leveling up that happens at some point where you simply can't physically do all the things, even if you were good at them, it's just too many things. That is the essence of trying to scale and scaling teams is hard. I mean, which, which thing could, especially when you're arrogant enough to be a founder, because generally you think that you are actually can do all those things better than other people. And, and maybe you even can, but you still need to carve off things to give to other people. And they probably think you're not so great at it anyway. So, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, well, that's right. And that's actually what I found. I was, uh, I was kind of, a, I was put in my place quite a bit when I, I started to bring up, you know, I'm thinking maybe I should be replaced in this. And then I would get resounding responses like, yes, that's a great idea, Robert. It's like, that was a little too fast. You didn't need, <laughs> you didn't need how long, <laughs> no, too much enthusiasm there. <laughs> Right, right. No, it's just you should probably dissuade me from. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Let's right. talk about right. this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah. So, okay. Wow. Awesome stuff. I'm sure we could we could do it all day, but you know. So point point me in the future now. Like, if starting today, what are you doing? Looking forward, what what's Robert's plan? You know, maybe a year, or two years down the road. What's the company plan? What's it look like? Maybe it's the fact that we've been in business long enough or that our product has made inroads with big companies sufficiently enough that I, I've given myself the space to look at the future and get really, really almost obsessed, I would say, with something that I've seen is missing that we, that we do solve for. So my, uh, what that is, is the habit formation last mile, the habit formation that people have to go through in order to get to performance. So if I look down the road what we're looking to do is actually completely shift the paradigm, to choose a cliche here. We want to really shift the paradigm of how learning is thought of in large organizations. And that starts with, I think, the large enterprises, but it even goes out to like big nonprofits trying to educate the public. It goes to school systems. It's any place where you need people to change what they do and how they do it and their attitudes about it so that a different level of performance can actually be commanded by the organization. And that what that will look like in the future in learning is an iterative relationship, you know, like fast failing, inexpensive testing, as you put it, between business leaders and learning leaders. So you have like learning designers over here that are just usually busy answering to what the business leaders are asking for. Hey, we need a training. Oh, okay, I'll go build a training. But really what they needed to be is strategic partners and think about 
attitudes and skills and knowledge. It's like an 80-20 rule. What is just the 20% of things that need to fo- people need to focus on in real life in order to build those habits so that I can have my KPIs met every time? And this isn't the way people are thinking about it maybe now. So you are taking on the evangelist hat. And the thing I think everybody can maybe learn from that is like, what do you do? And have you thought about, because it sounds like you have thought about like, how do I evangelize to everyone to change a major paradigm? What's going to be the path to achieve that? Yeah. Well, uh, as you asked earlier in the show, you were you're saying, how do you pull together like the team building or the resources and advisors? You got to, in my experience, we got to build it one champion at a time. So go into environments that are going to be influential. In our case, like Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies. I mean, you're already on our podcast, so I mean, <laughs> right. half the job so, is done. But, yeah. Exactly. So here's the evangelism platform, right? <laughs> right, right. It's, it's making sure that, that we get somebody who really sees a difference made and that they were empowered to do it. Not I was empowered to do it or my software so much, but it's they were empowered to do it. And it really takes something that doesn't always come naturally to me as an entrepreneur. It's like shifting to think about them. And when, when I do that, I hear, I hear my customer differently and I start getting into their world and trying to solve for their problems and support them. And once that breakthrough happens, you've really made a champion of someone because you've helped them break through in their career on how they can think about, let's say in this case, learning, right? Do that one at a time. And then pretty soon they're out talking in the conferences and you got to ask them for that too. Said, will you will you talk at the conference about this? Will you let us build a case study with you? You know, be willing to go through those time intensive storytelling building. It's the only way to get it out there. You got to tell stories. Yeah, uh, this is a huge lesson for everybody. Evangelizing and building a community is a full time job, probably multiple jobs, and it often gets slid under the marketing rug or somebody sort of owns that on the side and we should have a customer group or this or that. Like if anything, I, I worked a lot in the, the developer relations, you know, type of community with, with hardcore, you know, sort of tech companies. And this is the way that they learn to get grassroots support, you know, from open source communities or take care of your devs, take care of the, the user, you know, fight for the user like Tron, you know, and I think you're, you're totally right. And kudos to you to be able to grow a company, first of all, enough that it lets you do that, because I think it's it's not a thing that you can originally do. We all aspire to be, you know, thought leader evangelizers for our own, you know, thing. And you have to be in good enough shape to not have to, you know, do the, the client work and, you know, work in the business instead of on the business. So. Well, we, we, yeah, exactly right. In the business and not on the business. And that may mean that you... You know, like you, you've invented, let's say software, since that's my world, you know, if you built a piece of software and you're, you're really, it's your brainchild, but you aren't, you know, you don't fancy yourself as good with people or good with words, right? So you, you really got to partner with somebody who is, because that person will give you the freedom to work the business the way you see fit and they will help like, oh, you know, then a simple thing, like you were mentioning with developers, get all these developers on the forums, not just asking questions to help fix some software, have them talking about how things can be done differently. You don't have to be an evangelist for that. 
You just got to be willing to take a step of leadership every so often. And then pretty soon your developers get known as, I want to come work for your company. That's amazing. You people. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think when you are the evangelist type, like talker type, like you and me obviously are, you know, you take for granted that that it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. So I think you're absolutely right. Like find a talker because we sound like a bunch of windbags, but it really is important to keep us around. So. <laughs> I know we have a place in the world. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Robert, cool stuff. You know, so how do people get in touch if they want to be a customer? Maybe if they want to network with you, you know, what's your preferred channels to, to find you on, get in touch, maybe have some chat. So. I do. I do like to talk about what it is that's important to me and my customers and the and the industry in general on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. Uh, and also, you know, the the website is kaz.guru. So it's knowledge as a service. K a a s dot guru. The product that we use is, that we market is called Ringarang. So you can actually go to ringarang.com. It'll take you there. And the pro it's a play on the term boomerang. So the idea is you're s sending out info to people and it returns with data about what they know and don't know. And you just keep doing that loop. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. You know, really great conversation. Awesome learning. We're going to look forward to making sure we blast it out there to everybody. You're great, Ledge. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.